0: Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and grab it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the last uh, 13 verses of chapter 20. The next week will be in chapter 21, and then we will close the book on the Gospel of John. Um, we were supposed to finish the Gospel of John back in April, um, but it is it's stretched out for seven more months um, for... Um, A lot of reasons that were out of our control and uh, some reasons that were, but it's just indicative of 2020 that we spent way more time in this book and things didn't seem to go according to plan at all. But I hope it's been beneficial um, for you. Um, Often when I'm preparing a sermon, I'm considering four types of people who could potentially hear it. I'm trying to, to see the information from the perspectives of an older believer, a newer believer a skeptic, and elementary age child. And so to ensure that my my exposition, illustrations, and examples work on on these different levels, I'll ask myself questions like, would this reference encourage an older believer? Would this charge challenge a newer believer? Would this gospel illustration challenge a skeptic? Would Would this example confuse a fifth grader? And I walk through this exercise consistently because I understand many different people will receive the same message on any given Sunday morning. You know, on any given Sunday morning, a man who's been a Christian for 60 years and a woman who's never been in a church more than 60 minutes could sit in the same church in the same pews listening to the same preacher sharing the same gospel. And when you think about it that way, it's a little bit of an overwhelming premise But I recognize that the gospel is both deep and wide. The gospel is both meat and and milk. The gospel is both complicated theology and simple truth. And so I'm always working to, to strike a balance in my sermon preparation. Because if I do my job correctly, I'm presenting the gospel in a way that both the seeker and the saint can understand. And also recognize that the gospel is not for the choir only. You're probably familiar with this phrase, uh, "preaching to the choir." If not, it's basically a way of saying that you agree. You know, for example, if you said, "I love Chick Fil A milkshakes," I would respond, "Oh, you are preaching to the choir," because I'm with you. Okay, I'm, I'm in your corner when it comes to that take. A few years ago, I actually had the opportunity to preach to to the literal choir. Um, when I was pastor in Middle Georgia, I was asked to speak at. Uh, this community Thanksgiving service. And these annual services would bring together several churches from several different denominations and faith backgrounds for a Sunday evening of, of blended worship. And one of the highlights of these gatherings was always the community choir who led worship. You know, last year, they had almost a th- 100 voices, almost said 1,000. It was 100 voices assembled. On this night, there were probably uh, 50 or 60 in the choir but when I settled into the pulpit, uh, the choir settled into their seats. And as I started preaching, I quickly noticed that, that some choir members were, were having a conversation with me. And they were, they were preaching back to me. They were saying, Amen! Yes, Lord! Preach it! Come on now! That was my favorite one. Come on now! When you come from a Baptist background, you're not used to this. Now understand, Baptist preachers are happy if we see a few nodding heads and and hear one amen. If we do that, we have hit a home run. So I'm a little taken aback on this night with all the encouragement that I'm receiving from the choir because I've never experienced anything like it. But after a couple minutes, I started to appreciate it because, in one sense. Preaching to the choir is this this beautiful picture of our unity in the gospel. The choir on this night was full of men and women who came from different churches who who came together to worship the same Savior. And as they encouraged the young pastor in front of them, they were basically saying over and over again, Hey, we are behind you. We, We agree with you. We are with you. And so there's a good side of of preaching to the choir, but there's also a bad side of preaching to the choir because in a different sense, preaching to the choir can also be this sobering picture of our disobedience with the gospel. Because sometimes, preaching to the choir can involve preaching shallow, comfortable, man-centered sermons designed to tickle the ears of the congregation. And naturally, we understand the allure of preaching to the choir But we must realize that if we're only preaching to the choir, then we're not preaching to the rest of the world. And then the Great Commission becomes the Great Omission. The strategies of the church shift inward instead of outward. The sermons, lessons, Bible studies, and discussions within the walls of the church will only pertain to the members of the church. And so this morning, as we approach a a difficult topic As we we look at the the story of, of, of this disciple that's famously known as Doubting Thomas, we're going to avoid preaching to the choir, and we're going to try to approach the topic of doubt directly. Because if we're honest, on some level, doubt is a problem that the skeptic and the saint have in common. And so here's the outline for this morning, a very simple outline, two questions. One, why did Thomas doubt? And two, how did Christ answer his doubts? So why did Thomas doubt and how did Christ answer his doubts? So let's start by reading the text together. We're going to start reading in verse 19 and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. So verse 19 to verse 31, John writes, on the evening of that day. So this is the the evening of, of Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are, for, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and, and put your hand and, and place it, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, You may have life in his name. So Thomas says there in verse 25, rather matter of factly, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, unless I place my finger in the mark of the nails, unless I put my hand in his side, I will never believe. You know, if, if, if Christ doesn't show up in the second half of our passage, if, if these are the last recorded words of Thomas, then I would be forced to make a George Strait reference, right? Because these are the famous last words of a fool. Verse 25 is not a good look for Thomas. The other disciples come to him and say, We have seen the Lord, and he stubbornly responds, Unless I see, I will never believe. And on the surface, it seems like the testimony of ten of your closest friends would be sufficient, but it's not enough for Thomas. And so this brings us to our first question, why did Thomas doubt? Now there are a couple reasons for his, his doubt about the resurrection. There's a general reason, and there's a specific reason. So, so let's start by answering the question in the general sense. Thomas doubted because he was human. Thomas didn't cast doubt because he's a terrible person, showcasing the weakness of his faith. No, he cast doubt because he's an honest person, experienced a crisis of faith. He cast doubt because he was human. And and he's far from the only one in Scripture to do so. If you look in the Old Testament, there are many heroes of the faith. and, And for many of us, King David stands at the front of the line despite his his moral failures and some really egregious sins, he still accomplished a great deal. He defeated Goliath. He was a military hero. He built an empire by uniting the tribes of Israel. He established Jerusalem as their political, social, and spiritual capital. He moved the ark there. He was a, a poet. He wrote the book of Psalms. He did all of these things in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is described as a man after God's own heart. And yet, He doubted. If you look at Psalm 22, David wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from my words of groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night I find no rest. Then in the New Testament, the greatest man not named Jesus was John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, Jesus says as much. He tells the crowd, Truly I say to you among those born of women there has never there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist yet he doubted right before Christ said these words in chapter 11 John's disciples relayed a message to him from his prison cell they were sent to ask Christ are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another Consider this for a moment: that that John at, at the start of, of of the gospel, the start of Christ's gospel, of John, the start of Christ's ministry, that that he's this voice crying out in the wilderness, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This this forerunner for Christ. That he goes from that to a voice whispering through a prison door. Are we sure Jesus Christ is the cow we're looking for? Are we sure that Christ is the Messiah? And just for good measure, let's look at one more example. The end of of Matthew's gospel, in his final chapter, chapter 28, right after Christ has resurrected and right before Christ gave them the Great Commission and ascended into heaven, Matthew writes this amazing line in verse 17. It says, And when the disciples saw Christ, they worshipped him, But some doubted. But some doubted. Christ had fulfilled every Old Testament scripture. He had overcome the grave, and he was mere moments away from floating up into heaven to take his eternal seat at the right hand of the Father. And some of the disciples, in this moment, just shrugged and said, You know, I'm not really sure. I, I'm probably just going to keep my options open for a little while. It's insane. But here's the point when we see David doubt, when we see John the Baptist doubt, when we see the other disciples doubt, we should react in a couple of ways. First, we should drop Thomas's unfair nickname. For 2,000 years, of church history. He's been known as as Doubting Thomas, and I don't know what we have to do. Maybe we start a petition on change.org, maybe we bring a resolution to the Southern Baptist Convention in 2021, but it's been 2,000 years. He shouldn't still be Doubting Thomas. We should do something about that. And second, we should cut ourselves a little slack. We should give ourselves a break. We should recognize that doubt is a common experience for all of us. In his book, Scandalous, New Testament uh, scholar D.A. Carson devotes an entire chapter to Christ's interaction with Thomas in chapter 20. And and in this chapter, he writes about the different kinds of of doubt because not all doubt is the same. Doubt can come from ignorance to the truth. If your perception of Christianity has been shaped by culture, or by a negative experience with the local church, then you're likely refused pursuing deeper knowledge and settled for a flawed understanding. Doubt can come with maturity. When I was serving in in student ministry, we'd often quote this this study from Lifeway Research, which found that 70% of 18 to 25-year-olds who grew up in an evangelical church left it for at least a year during college. And not just that church, just church in general, for at least a year in college. And that's a troubling statistic for sure, but it's also a very natural progression for young adults to ask hard questions about their faith when they get out on their own. You know, to a certain extent, until you're 18, your faith is a little bit mom and dad's faith, and then you have to make a decision for yourself which path you're going to choose. And so in some ways, it's healthy for a young adult to ask, do I really believe this? Do I really believe this? Do I really want to devote my life to Christ? Doubt can be a result of a hundred little choices. You, know, you probably won't wake up tomorrow and say, today I've decided to doubt my faith, but you can have this, this, this progression happen. If you choose to pour out too much energy into work, or you choose to neglect your family, or you choose to avoid attending church, or you choose to ignore the, the, the warning signs in your life that you're going down this dangerous trajectory, then more than likely you'll fall into sin. And when you do, when you're down deep in the bottom of that pit, you may refuse to put any of the blame on yourself. You know, the people will do this where they'll walk And they'll make mistake after mistake after mistake, and they will they will fall into the pit on their own accord. And then they'll look up at their world crumbling around them and say, "God, why did you allow this to happen to me? God, why are you singling me out? God, why are you being so unfair?" Doubt is sometimes tied to your body. If you don't take care of yourself, if you don't rest, if you don't sleep, if you don't exercise, if you don't Keep watch over your physical health, and you can reach a state of exhaustion. And exhaustion leads to cynicism. And cynicism is a close cousin of doubt. And finally, doubt can come through a painful crisis. You lose a loved one. You endure a brutal, lingering sickness. You're laid off from work. You know We understand that sometimes suffering can, can bring you closer to God. You've heard the stories where believers say, my cancer brought me directly to the throne of God, or my loss helped me experience fellowship with Christ in a much deeper way. But suffering can have the opposite effect too. Other times, suffering can send you running away from God. And so there's multiple layers to doubt. And maybe one of these examples brings back memories of a painful season. Or maybe right now, one of the examples describes where you're at. Maybe you're currently walking through a season of doubt. Maybe you have small doubts about certain portions of Scripture or beliefs of the church. Or maybe you have big doubts about God's sovereignty or your salvation. And I want you to know that if you've experienced doubt in the past, or you experience doubt in the present, or, or when you inevitably experience doubt in the future in some way, please hear and remember these words. Having doubt doesn't mean that you're a lost sheep, doesn't mean that you're a weak Christian. It means that you are a fallen human being living on the wrong side of heaven. And so to an extent, doubt is always going to be part of the human experience. Now for Thomas, he had another reason for his doubt. And so let's talk about this specific reason for Thomas's doubt. Thomas's doubt came from spiritual disappointment. Second point, Thomas doubted because he was disappointed. Listen, if you hang around the church long enough, you will be disappointed. If you hang around your pastor long enough, you will certainly be disappointed. Because the local church is full of imperfect people following a perfect Savior. And for that reason, churches split, pastors flame out, deacons falter, church members fall short, and unfortunately, some allow their disappointment in the actions of sinful humans affect their perception of, of the sinless Christ. And so Thomas was experiencing a, a spiritual disappointment that we we struggle to understand. Profound religious disappointment. Remember, he left his former life. He followed Jesus for three years. He ate with him. He traveled with him. He witnessed the miracles. He heard the words. He watched him fulfill scripture. You remember he, he rode into Jerusalem. Do you remember that day, Palm Sunday? Thousands of Jews are spreading palm branches in front of him and shouting, Hallelujah! Glory to God! Hosanna! 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 And so there were surely moments like this one, where Thomas thought to himself, this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. Back in John 11, he didn't understand why they were going to Bethany, but he was willing to die for Christ. In John 14, he didn't understand the way, but he was starting to come around on believing in him. And then Christ died, and Thomas was sent reeling. You know, understand that, that Christ had shattered every expectation for Thomas. Thomas, like many Jews in his day, believed the Messiah would come as this powerful military leader, riding into town on a white horse, crushing the bad guys, rewarding the good guys, taking the the Jews out from under Roman oppression and, and, and establishing Israel as its own nation once again. And then Christ comes. And he lives as a friend to the Roman, to the tax collector, and to the prostitute. And he dies in weakness and shame. And Thomas had no category for a dying Messiah or a suffering God. You know, and Thomas could have held out hope to the bitter end. Now we know he wasn't present at the cross but he could have been keeping track of these events and just holding on to hope that, that Christ was going to take decisive action. He could have been thinking, you know, I, I was I was scared when they arrested him in the garden. I was nervous when he stood before Pilate. But even when he went to the cross, even when he went to the cross, I was sure That he was just up to his old tricks. I knew that at any moment he would call down an army of angels to fight his battle. I I, I knew that, that he would call down fire from heaven to destroy his enemies. But he didn't do it. He just died. He was no Messiah. He was no Savior. He was nothing more than a massive disappointment. In verse 24, we see that Thomas was not with the other disciples on that Easter Sunday evening when Christ first appeared. Now, we can read too much into this, and some have, but we can really only speculate as to why Thomas was missing. But we can gather an important lesson from his absence, and we must understand that doubt thrives in isolation. When, when, when you're not surrounding yourself with other Christ followers who are pouring into your life, who are, who are holding you accountable, who are keeping you encouraged, then your doubts can quickly move from a whisper to a scream. You know, this year has been discouraging for a number of reasons. If we went around the room and and, and took a little time of of testimony and listed our gripes with 2020, we wouldn't conclude the service until Wednesday afternoon sometime. We've all got issues with 2020, and one of the most disheartening things about this year has been the consistent isolation from the rest of this world. I'm sure you've seen on the news, they, they, they don't want us to gather for Thanksgiving. They don't want us to gather for Christmas. There's talk of, of of more lockdowns and continued social distancing well into next year. And and, and 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 we want to follow those guidelines, but also in Genesis, God told Adam it's not good for man to be alone. Because we are, are created as as relational beings and we need the encouragement, accountability, and and fellowship of others. And so while we can't pinpoint the reason for Thomas' absence, we can learn about the danger of isolation from his absence. As another preacher puts it, his absence warns us that the weeds of doubt grow fast and strong in the soil of isolation. Faith is cultivated through fellowship with Christ and other Christians, so don't miss the meeting. Don't miss the meeting. And we don't know why but Thomas missed this first meeting. But here's here's the encouraging part. When we look at verse 25, we learn something from the disciples about handling the doubts of other believers. Verse 25 says, the other disciples told him we have seen the Lord. And in the original language, the grammatical emphasis translates, they kept telling him. They, They continued telling him. We have seen the Lord. And so we see this picture of the other disciples repeatedly and emphatically reporting about their meeting with the risen Christ. They didn't hold Thomas's absence against him. They didn't shame him. They didn't belittle him. They simply continued to share the gospel with him over and over again. But their witness wasn't enough. Because Thomas wanted more evidence. He wanted more answers. He famously said, unless I see, I will never believe. And so let's move to our, our second question. How did Christ answer his doubts? Christ provided Thomas and us with three things. Let's look at these individually. They're, I'm sorry, the three things are peace, presence, and purpose. All right, let's look at these individually. First, Christ provides peace. On three occasions, Christ said, peace be with you. Verse 27, when he first encountered Thomas, the first words out of his mouth were, peace be with you. And this is a little humorous because if a dead man suddenly appeared in the middle of a locked room, your first instinct would not be peace. I mean, imagine waking up in the middle of the night and your mouth is dry and you go into your kitchen to grab a glass of water and you flip on the light and you find me sitting at your table and I look up from the plate of your Oreos that I'm eating, and I utter the words, Peace be with you, brother. I'm betting that you're not going to feel peace in that moment. It's probably going to startle you. It's going to scare you a little bit that someone's sitting at your kitchen table. Now, when Christ said, Peace be with you, He wasn't simply offering a, a greeting to the disciples. He was making a much more significant statement. In several weeks, we are going to come to another Christmas. And do you remember what the angels declared on that first Christmas night? Peace on earth. There are two other times in the Gospel of John where Christ issued peace to his disciples. And both of those statements occurred in the upper, Upper Room Discourse. The first is in chapter 14. Christ said to them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid. So in one way this peace that comes from Christ says don't be afraid I'm with you. And then in chapter 16 a little bit later in the upper room discourse Christ said I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation but take heart I've overcome the world. In another way this peace from Christ says don't be afraid I've overcome the world. And this second understanding of Christ's peace is the foundation of the gospel. That when Christ went to the cross and defeated the grave, he he charted a peace treaty between a rebellious human race and a holy God. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, But now in Christ you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And then in Colossians 2, he explains further, And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ is our peace. When he shed his blood on the cross, he paid our debt in full. Second, Christ provides presence. So as we already mentioned, uh, Thomas's doubt was directly related to questions and concerns about Christ's death. He couldn't wrap his mind around a dying Messiah. He couldn't wrap his mind around a suffering God. But I want you to notice in verse 27 that when Christ encounters Thomas, he doesn't offer him explanation. He offers him revelation. Christ could have sat Thomas down and said, I know that you have questions. I know that you have doubts. I know that you have concerns. So let me walk you through the purpose of these things. Let me walk you through the big picture, the overarching picture of of what God is is doing here. Let's have this conversation. Let's work this out. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do that. Instead, he tells Thomas put your finger here, see my hands put out your hand and put it in my side don't disbelieve but believe christ didn't directly address the substance of thomas's doubts instead he confronted him with the evidence of the resurrection he invited him to examine his body and touch his scars christ did this because our faith isn't rooted in explanation it's rooted in an event Or as Andy Stanley puts it, our faith didn't begin with people who believe something, but with people who saw something. To be clear, I'm not implying that we should become complacent in in our study of the Scriptures. I'm not saying that we should avoid uh, working towards a greater understanding of difficult concepts, but I am saying that far too often we get bogged down with secondary issues So you can debate if creation was seven 24-hour days or seven long periods. You can ask questions about dinosaurs. You can wonder where Cain's wife came from. And you can search for evidence supporting a a worldwide flood. And by the way, all of these uh, difficult passages are just in the first few chapters of Genesis. So you can can dive headfirst into, into those waters, but you can't let secondary issues displace primary issues. You must keep the main thing the main thing. You must remember the overarching story of Scripture that God created man's sin, Christ redeemed, and we respond. So Christ didn't offer Thomas' explanation, he offered revelation. And that was enough. The testimony of ten of his friends was not enough, but, but Christ's presence was enough. And so Thomas responds in this powerful way, My Lord and my God. He went from a skeptical man to a saved man in an instant. But then the story ends in an unexpected way. The final point is that, that Christ provides Purpose. When Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God, he makes this this monumental faith claim. He's saying, you are the Messiah, you are the King, you are, you are the ruler, you're Judge, you're God, you're the one with the Father just as you said. I see it now, I believe it now, I'm with you. And if this was a fictional story, we would probably see a, an alternate ending. Thomas would say, my Lord and my God, and Jesus would respond, my son and my disciple. And then they'd share a a group hug with the other disciples, and the frame would freeze, and the end credits would roll. But here's the issue with a, a glossy Hollywood ending. If the story ended with Thomas believing, and the room rejoicing, and the disciples taking a victory parade down Main Street with Thomas on their shoulders, then we wouldn't have any answers for ourselves. We wouldn't have any answers for our doubts. And we would say, well, that's that's good for Thomas. He saw Jesus Christ in the flesh and, and believed, but... We live 2,000 years in the future, and we'll never experience Christ in the same way. This is why Christ gave Thomas a general rebuke in verse 29. He asked, have you believed because you have seen me? And then he says, listen to this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Can you see Christ giving a small wink to us in the future? He was referencing this quickly approaching era when faith would not be based on firsthand encounters with Jesus, but it would be based on the Spirit-given testimony of those who are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And Thomas's transition from doubter to believer is appropriately placed right before John's purpose of the book In verses 30 and 31 where he says these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. In a short period of time Thomas walked through the the natural progression of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. The cross gave him an eternal peace with God the Father. Christ gave him The constant presence of God the Spirit and the Great Commission gave him the lifelong purpose from God the Son. Thomas was the last disciple to believe, but according to church history, he was the first disciple to be martyred. He took the gospel to India where he was speared to death by the locals because of his preaching. You know, the only explanation... For such a dramatic turnaround for Thomas was a firsthand experience with the resurrected Christ. And so church, if you're, you're wrestling with doubt, join Thomas in bringing your doubts to the foot of the cross. Your faith is not con- contingent on what can be explained. Your faith is rooted in what has already been revealed. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the example of Thomas. You know, far too often in in the local church we feel shame and and, and regret for having doubt. And this this story is an encouragement to us. You say, Blessed are those who who believe what they can't see and you know father that's us and so thank you for this story and thank you for the ways that that that, that christ has has revealed himself to us through your word and so father as we come to a time of imitation, i just pray for everyone under the sound of my voice that they would share this this testimony with Thomas that at some point in their life they've said, you know, I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but, but now I see. Father, if there's anyone in here that's never made that profession of faith and still struggling with doubt, Father, through your Spirit, I I pray that you would encourage them this morning to leave those doubts at at the foot of the cross. I pray this morning that they would, would see the resurrected Christ with new eyes. Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to understand. We love you, and we thank you for your Son. We pray these things in His name. Amen.